Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday, we rerun some of the stories that have run on the podcast over the past 10 and a half years. From June 11th to July 2nd, 2020, we're going to be rerunning some of our very favorite stories that have been told by black storytellers about race and racism. As you probably know, a huge priority of ours here at Risk is to feature as many stories from people of different walks of life. And it's especially important, we think, that people are hearing about black lived experience from black people. That's why I want to remind everyone, if you, if you think you might have a story to share along these lines about race or racism, please, if you catch yourself thinking, yeah, but my story's not so spectacular, or, oh, I'm not much of a storyteller, don't worry about that. If you have had lived experiences that made you emotional in some way, you have stories, and we can help you shape them. So reach out to me at kevin at risk-show.com or to our pitches people at pitches at risk-show.com. There's lots of tips on how to pitch us at the submissions page at risk-show.com. So we want your stories. We can help you prepare them. And we want you all to be spreading the word to other people you think might have great stories along these lines. Now, for this episode, we're going to hear remarkable stories, first by Donna Bailey, then Avery Williams, and finally, Chris Redd. Now, here's the show. It was the late 1970s, and I found myself out of work. I had been working in television production on a show for CBS. It was called The Andros Targets, and it got canceled. So I registered with a temp agency. My first assignment was a week-long assignment at a bank on the Upper East Side in New York City. I was to stand inside the bank, close to the entrance, and hand out free stuff to the customers. And I had to wear this little sash. Easy job. Now, I was paired on this assignment with another woman, and she and I were about the same age. So I guess I probably was in my late 20s then. Lovely woman, naturally blonde, blue eyes, thin. We were both very thin. (laughs) We hit it off pretty quickly. And we were both contemplating an acting career, so we had that in common. But we also had another thing in common. We both loved to eat, and we both loved to cook. So every day, when we were there working together between the customers, we'd talk about recipes and stuff. And she would say to me, Oh, Donna, if you put the chicken into the oven and you pour this on it, I mean, I'm telling you, Donna, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God. I liked her a lot. She was funny. It's been a long time, so I can't remember her name, but let's just call her Becky. That Thursday, she invited me to have dinner to meet her husband 
at her apartment that Saturday, and she was going to fix her infamous pot roast. Her husband loved this dish. I was to bring the wine. I said, okay. So I showed up on Saturday at the appointed time, and the husband opened the door. And he was pretty much a male version of her. Very thin, blonde hair, blue eyes, very warm and friendly. We hit it off immediately. And we started talking movies and stuff because he was also contemplating an acting career. Both of us were De Niro fans. De Niro was really hot then. This was the 70s. He had just done Taxi Driver. He had done that. And, and we had just seen uh, New York, New York with uh, Liza Minnelli. You know, we were into Pacino and all this stuff. We had a great time talking. And then we went in to sit down to eat. And the food was just gorgeous. It was just wonderful. I mean, that pot roast. I mean, I can still taste it. That's how good it was. And we're eating, and the wine is flowing, and then all of a sudden, the phone rings. Becky answers the phone. It was clear she was talking to someone who was going to be the fourth person at this dinner. I don't know, this made me nervous for some reason. And that's when I noticed that there had been a fourth place setting there at the table. I hadn't noticed that before. But I got a little nervous about that because I had been in situations where whites had invited me to certain parties or what have you, wanted me to meet somebody. It would be some black guy that was just totally incompatible with me. They figured, well, she's black, he's black, they should hit it off. Usually we didn't. So we finished our meal, and then we went into the living room with our coffee. This fourth person said he was running late, and he would be there in time for dessert. So the husband, and let's call him Bob, he and I just hit it off again talking about movies and stuff. I'm sitting on the love seat. Bob is sitting in a pretty large armchair sitting across from me. And Becky is on the floor next to my feet. And then I notice something odd. Becky is stroking my leg. And I'm thinking to myself, well, why is she doing that? So I moved over a little bit to get away from her. Bob is still chatting away. And lo and behold, Becky starts stroking my leg again. Now, at this point, I'm thinking, either this woman has a serious boundary problem or she's intoxicated. Is she just weird? Crazy? Definitely inappropriate. And I frowned at her, and then I moved over again. And that's when the doorbell rang. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, thank God. Even though I had been a little nervous about this black guy showing up. Now I'm thinking, thank God he's showing up because these people are a little strange. Bob gets up to open the door. And there was the fourth person, except he wasn't black. He's a white guy. He's very tall, I would say 6'3", 240 pounds, big guy. 
introductions are made and I know immediately that I'm in danger. There's a feeling when you're black, when you're in the presence of certain white people, when you know that you're in the presence of a white person who cannot stand black people. It's nothing they have to say. It's just a look. And he gave me that look. It was just unadulterated hatred. I mean, the hostility in this man's eyes was there. There was no question what was going on. He had a foreign accent. I couldn't tell whether it was Eastern European, maybe Russian. So let's call him Boris. Boris went across the room and he sat in a small chair. And he sat there and he glared at me. At this point, I'm on full alert. I'm looking to see where my purse is, where my coat is. I'm thinking I may have to exit this place pretty fast. But I'm nervous. And I'm sitting upright in my seat. And then Bob leans forward and says, You know, Donna, we really like you. And I'm thinking, okay, what do you mean by that? And then Becky starts up again, again. She starts stroking my leg. Now this time I'm angry. And I'm just getting ready to say to her, what the fuck are you doing? When Boris glares at me and he begins to sing. Oh, I wish I were in the land of cotton. Old times there are not forgotten. Look away, look away, look away, Dixieland. That's when I realized what the hell was going on. They had planned an orgy for that night. But he was letting me know he didn't like black people and I needed to get the hell out of there. And you know what? That's exactly what I did. I grabbed my purse, I grabbed my coat, and I ran out. And I ran down the stairs to the first landing. And then I heard them yelling at each other. And I knew that they were not going to run out to get me. So I stood there to listen. Becky. So what are you, some kind of racist? Are you racist? Boris. I ain't fucking no niggas. I ain't fucking no niggas. You know, niggas got diseases. Bob. Man, why didn't you tell us, man? I really wanted to fuck her from the time she walked in the door. I wanted to fuck her, man. Boris. I'm telling you, man, you should have told me I don't fuck no niggas. Becky, you are really crazy. You are really crazy. We set this whole thing up. Bob, man, I got a hard on, man. What am I supposed to do with my hard on? Boris, fuck your wife, man. That's what you do with your hard on. Bob thought this was funny. Becky didn't. I'm not fucking anybody. I wanted to fuck her. And I stood there and I thought, all of you guys are crazy. I was disgusted. And I was angry. And I was humiliated. Not once did any of these people think about what I had wanted. 
I had been invited there under false pretenses. I thought this was going to be the beginning of a friendship. But they hadn't seen me that way at all. I wasn't a person to these people. This had all been set up and planned. This wasn't about friendship at all. There's a stereotype about black people that's very pervasive in this country about black people, and particularly black women, that we just like to fuck all the time. And so I couldn't help but wonder if that's why I was invited. You know, a black girl, she would just drop her panties at the drop of a hat, right? And this has become a problem for me and a lot of other black women when we're dating white guys. Is the guy interested in me as a person? Or is it because of what he has heard about what black women are like in the bedroom? It's always there. There are some black women I know who never will ever date a white man. And so it was all about race and sex with these three people. What I also realized that even if that wasn't there, these were three really disgusting people. By this point, they're screaming at each other. And that's when I thought, you know what, let me get the hell out of here. I went down the stairs, I left the building, and I stood there, and I took in a deep breath. And then I looked up at the heavens, and I said, thank you, God. Sometimes bigots come in handy. All right, so it's 2009. Uh, we had a different president. Um, I'm sitting on a red chair, red leather couch. Um, you can tell it used to be comfortable, uh, but it's way past its prime. It's got bruises. It's been beat up. And I've got some notes on my lap. I've got my book bag on my back, and I've got my suitcase at my feet. And I'm sitting in an airport in the middle of Pennsylvania, and I'm on my way to an interview. I'm a second-year engineering student at Penn State, I've been trying to get an internship for a long time, mostly because I need some money. I'm broke. And this is a big step. This interview is going to be big for me. And I'm also excited because I'm an introvert. And plane rides are pretty awesome for me because your phone doesn't work. No one's going to call you. You don't have to worry about being early or late. You're just, whenever the plane gets me there, that's when I get there. So it's, it's a good time for me to recharge. And so I get on the plane. Everything goes great. I'm getting off. I'm feeling good. And my first job is to try to find these other students who are interviewing with me. And so I find them, great group, it's about six kids. First thing I notice, only black guy there, right? Only black person there, it's cool. Penn State's not very diverse, it's not a surprise. Engineering is even less diverse if you're not familiar. Um, So you kind of get used to being the only person in the room, right? You kind of get used to oh, make your own groups, pair up and do this, and kind of you're just kind of there in the middle, like nobody wants to be on my team, sad story. Um, you kind of get used to like the offhanded comments, which you're like, was that racist or was that just like, like, I don't really know why we get Martin Luther King Day off. It's not really that big of a deal. And you're just kind of like. <laughs> so anyway, you get used to that stuff. You learn to deal with it in your own way. But otherwise, like I said, we meet this group. They're a great group of kids. We meet up with the representative of the company, and we load up into this 15-passenger van, and we're about to drive from Memphis about two hours into the middle of Arkansas, and that's where the place is that we're going to interview. So 
we get in the sun setting. So the first thing I notice is I'm sitting in the back and I'm kind of looking out the window and I can tell that it's flat, but I can't see anything. And so it's kind of this, this dark void that is just beyond the window. It's interesting to me because I'm like, I've never been to Arkansas and I, I may not ever come back, honestly, but I can't, I can't see anything, right? I don't, I don't know what's out there. So we drive the two hours, we get there and being college students, everybody kind of hops out the van. They're like, oh, it's only 10. We can't go to sleep now. We got to like do college stuff, whatever that is. And so they're like, like, we'll just kind of hit the bar and then we'll park by the pool. It was a nice pool. They'd kind of really spare no expense for all of us to come out there. And it was kind of strange that this hotel was this nice in the middle of like nowhere. Like, why is this even here? But again, introvert. I'm kind of like, dude, I need to like read a book or just kind of sit and meditate or do whatever. And one thing as an introvert, you get used to, you kind of like come with prepackaged excuses. You're kind of like ready for like, if I'm here and I need to get here, I'm going to do this. And so I think the first thing I said is, yeah, I don't have, I don't have swim trunks, guys. Like, yeah, you know, so I, I know that if I can just get to my room, you know, you can come up with any number of excuses why you didn't come back, but you have to escape the immediate peer pressure. And so I kind of slide off, hit the elevator, I get to the room. It's nice. It's great. But my balcony is really close to the pool. And so I can kind of hear the sound of like college banter fun. There's like, oh, oh, splash, oh, beer. I'm like, okay. It actually does kind of sound like they're having a good time. And I don't know what happened to me, but I decide, all right, I'm going to go down, right? Thing is, I don't actually have swim trunks. So that was a real problem I had to solve. Um, but I, I'm a huge Batman fan. I had this pair of lucky Batman boxers that I was kind of like, ah, like in a pinch, this could work. Um, but I did say boxers, not trunks, right? So these didn't have a button. So there was a risk inherent, right? And even just going down there. But I go down, everything's great. We, we were down there for hours, long after the pool had closed. Um, and we actually had a great time. We actually bonded. It was great. Um, eventually, we call it. We go upstairs. We all kind of get rest. And we meet early in the morning. We get in our same white van. We drive about 20 minutes now to this plant. And again, we're driving middle of nowhere. It's, like, it's almost like, where is the destination? Like, where are you driving us to? And kind of out of nowhere, kind of like erupts from the ground, this little building kind of in the distance. And as we get bigger, as we get closer, it gets bigger. And eventually, it's this massive, huge, 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 huge plant. And we go through the security gate. They gave us all this PPE, all this uh, safety equipment, hard hat, hard-toed shoes, ear protection, eye protection, all the, all the protections, right? And we get out of the van, and the first thing I notice is there's like this roar, like this like rumble, kind of like if you ever stood next to a train as it passes, that just feeling of like the whole ground is shaking. And we're like, why? There's no trains, right? We can see everywhere. There's no train. We go in, and I can see why the floor is rumbling, because there's all this massive equipment moving through. They have these huge overhead cranes, which are carrying hundreds and hundreds of tons of steel. And if you can imagine what a steel mill looks like, that's what this is. This is an actual steel mill. We make steel here. And so the air has this, like, it, it's heavy it, with whatever. I don't know what's in it. It's hot. It's heavy. It's thick. And it has this totally different texture than any place I've ever been. They've got these huge, like I said, these huge things moving throughout. They've got this thing that they call an electric arc furnace, which you should Google because it's super crazy. It's like a tea kettle, right, that's the size of a house. And they're dumping scrap steel into it and conducting it and doing all this cool stuff in the background that makes it melt. It's kind of crazy. Now, all this cool stuff is happening. I know I'm not going to work here. Um, I'm an aerospace engineer. My job is making things fly really fast, really far. 
I don't really need to be here, but it's nice to be wanted, right? It's nice to be invited. And so we go through and we do the interviews and all that kind of stuff is great. We do the pleasantries. And then we head back to the hotel so we can pack and we're going to head out early in the morning. Now, we get back in our van. We've got the same two-hour ride. Now, the difference is that the sun is up. We can see all the stuff that we couldn't see on the way in. As we're going through, it's literally, guys, it's nothing but corn and cotton. Sorry. Ooh, I just spoiled it. It's corn and wheat. Pretend like you didn't know that part. <laughs> so we're driving. We're driving. We're driving. Everybody's kind of just talking, 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 talking. And we kind of see this new crop that you guys don't know what it is. And it's got a gray stem. And at the top, it has like a pillow kind of top. And I'm from Philly, right? I, I, we, I don't know what crops are. And I just remember thinking to myself, this must be where they make all the food in the world. Because like, this is, I mean, as far as you can see, there's nothing behind the corn, right? It's just more corn back there. And I'm kind of wondering, what is this gray thing that looks like a dandelion? It's kind of strange. And eventually somebody in the van speaks what I'm thinking, which is, what is this? Like, what is that? It kind of looks like, and somebody goes, is that cotton? So now I'm like, oh, that's kind of weird. It kind of knocks me off balance because cotton for me has like a different connotation. And, and I know we still use cotton, right? I know it still exists, but I've never seen a cotton field before. I'm kind of like, again, I'm in my head. I'm like, oh, this is kind of weird. I'm glad I got a three-hour plane ride to kind of like internalize this and figure out how I feel. But then the next thing somebody says is, can we pick some? So now, now I'm like, oh no, like, I, so I, I withdraw, right? I, I withdraw. It's kind of like in the movies where like the main character, they just kind of like zoom out and they're just by themselves. So now I'm miles away from anybody else and I'm just like, holy shit, like that, that just happened. Somebody said that. And before I know it, you know, I feel the rumble strips of hmm, hmm, and then we're, we're off to the side of the road. The doors fly open. Everybody goes flying out the door. And I'm just like, dude, no. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to. So this is introvert's worst nightmare is when you have to react to something that you haven't had a chance to internalize. So you're just kind of like, oh, shit. And then on top of that, you're the only black person. So now you're the spokesman for all black people, right? <laughs> so I'm kind of sitting in the back of the van like, dude, maybe if I just like stay still, no one will see me. They'll get back in. It'll be great. And they all hop out. And they kind of go, oh, are you going to get out? And I'm like, ah, like, ah. So I don't know what happened. I kind of blacked out. I kind of, <laughs> and now I'm outside. And now the thing I remember here is the, the rushing of the interstate behind me. So there's cars going back. And then in front of me is this scene of six white college kids frolicking through a cotton field. <laughs> and I'm hearing them say things like, oh, my God, it's really sharp. It's like, it's sharp. It's not. It's, it's painful. Oh, can you get it? It's stuck on my shirt. And I'm just like, yo, this is like a real thing that is happening. And the most vivid part of this is my friend, not her real name, Mary, to this day, she's one of the, the, one of the most thoughtful, nice, sweet people that I've ever met in my life. And she has this beaming smile that's brighter than almost anybody that I've ever met, except my wife. And she comes up to me with, with the smile and goes, do you want to pick any? And so I'm like, so I have this moment kind of like in Lion King where Mufasa's in the clouds. And, he's, and so all my ancestors are like, dude, I, you better. And I'm like, guys, 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 I got it, I got it. I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Are you serious? Like, are you, are you actually serious right now? Are we having this conversation, right? Do you understand that my ancestors were literally kidnapped, 
brought on a boat, the ones that survived, right, and had to pick this from sunup to sundown, not of their choosing. After they got out of that, they had to deal with Jim Crow for a couple years, and then they had to deal with the civil rights movement, all this so they could get an education and make some money so that I could get an education and never have to pick cotton in a field ever again, right? And so here you are in 2009, right? Different president. 2009, you're asking me if I want to pick any cotton. Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. I didn't actually say any of this, right? This is just, this is just in my head. I'm like, okay. Mm, I think what actually came out was like, ah, like mm, I'm good. Like, I'm good. I think I'm actually good. She turned around. She went frolicking back into the field. It was great. I'm standing there. She's like, can you take a picture of us? And so I take a picture of them, which to this day, the most ironic picture I've ever taken, which is like six white people holding cotton. And the piece of it that's the best is that the camera person was black and is not picking the cotton. Awesome, right? But we all get back in the van. The rest of the trip is uneventful. When we get to the airport, I'm glad that none of our seats are together so I can do the thing where I internalize. And when we got to Penn State, we all got off and we're catching, I don't even know if we had Uber at that time. We think we talked taxis. And she gave me a piece, like a bulb of cotton. And I was like, oh snap. First of all, it is really sharp. Didn't know that. And then we go back to our rooms. Everything's normal, go back to school. To be honest, I really struggled with that situation for a long time because the other thing is that you, you sometimes get that feeling of like, am I black enough? And I, would, I told some of my friends like, guys, this happened. And they went, well, what'd you do? What, what did you say? And I'm like, I don't know. I kind of just was like, oh, I'm good. And they're like, are you, what? I'll be like, are you fucking kidding me? Are you gonna really ask me to? And I was just like, dang, like, did I, did I react, right? Like, was that, did I mess up? Should I have like taught the lesson in that moment? And eventually I kind of came to a point that, you know, the cotton kind of taught the lesson for me, right? The cotton showed you how difficult it is, how sharp it can be, how uncomfortable it can be. For a few minutes in the fall, when it's cool, of your own choosing, you, you decided to do this and it was not fun. So imagine what it would be like to do this under a whip, right? And I kind of struggled and I thought maybe that lesson would have been lost if I had flown off the handle. Like maybe, maybe that lesson wouldn't have been taught. I can't honestly take credit for keeping a calm head because it, it was a reaction. I didn't, I didn't consciously say, you know what, try to like be, no, I, it just literally, that's what came out. I think that's how I managed the moment. But now I try to carry that with me. So now, now we do live in a different time where I think people are being offensive and being intentional. And I think you have the right to be offended by that, right? No, no one would fault you if you were mad that somebody said something ridiculous to you. But I think what I try to carry with me now is, what, is it more powerful to build a bridge instead of burn one, right? Do we, do we sometimes make more space to have these lessons if you can give somebody, extend them the generosity, the benefit of doubt in the moment? Um, and so I try to carry that with me and I hope you guys will too. Thank you. So, uh, I was chaotic as a kid. I was a very wild child. I had southern parents, very militant, uh, black panther ties, grew up in Mississippi, Jackson and Kosciuszko. Kosciuszko so country, you don't know where the fuck that is right now, which is a symbol of how country it was. A very dry county. 
and they grew up in the 60s, 70s. So you could imagine the racism that they've seen. They moved us out to the west side of Chicago, and I was like, oh, black people. And then they moved us out to this place called Naperville, which is like if Wonder Bread was a place. <laughs> I was so mad we moved there. Not the fact that I hate white people, but I just like being around people that look like me. And we had moved from St. Louis, where it was mixed, and I was like, the next place we go, better be all black. It was definitely not. My parents always try to prepare us for the world. My dad was always more militant than my mom. He was always giving us quotes. And anybody who's black, who grew up black and stayed black, has heard these quotes before. It would be quotes like, hey, listen, you gotta work twice as hard to get the same opportunities as these white people, okay? And sometimes when you work just as hard, you still aren't an equal, and that's just how shit goes. So you have to persevere. It's a major one. One was, don't be late. Because if you late one time, you late all the time. And then my favorite, what he would say was, white women gonna get you in trouble. <laughs> yes. And I went to school with a bunch of white girls. So I was like, Dad, I don't know if I can take it. I don't know <laughs> if I cannot date one of these white women. He's like, listen, you better listen to me. Shoot, OJ, I bet he wish he had had me as a friend. <laughs> and as funny as that is, if OJ had one wish that would actually work, I don't think your friendship would be the thing. <laughs> And my mom would always sit there, and she's, you know, the breadwinner, very professional, had a corporate job. She's the reason why we were able to live in this suburb. She would hear these quotes that my dad would tell me, and she would be like, your father is crazy as hell. <laughs> but he ain't all the way wrong. But they're not all bad. You have to understand that. Making blanket statements about a race is wrong. That's what they did to us, so don't do that to them. <laughs> One day, it was, I was 15 years old, and I walked out to my car. I had just started driving and she had my permit, so sometimes I drive by myself to the store to grab eggs. <laughs> oh, as a kid, ooh, going to the store to grab eggs was an adventure. <laughs> I listen to what I want to listen to. I'm gonna grab the shit out these eggs. <laughs> I did an extra lap before I came home. So I was like, yo, can I go to the store and grab whatever you need? She's like, yeah, go get me a mop. I'm like, for sure. I don't know where the mop is, so that's gonna take a long time. <laughs> I might go to my friend Jordan's house. So I walked out to the car, and nigga was written on my car with the ER. So I knew it was white people. Because <laughs> if it hadn't been the A, I'm like, those niggas crazy. <laughs> also, when did they move on to the street? Because I thought we were the only niggas here. <laughs> but it was an ER, so I needed justice. I was mad. I was enraged. I ran inside. I said, fuck that mop. Somebody wrote nigga on the car with the ER. My dad was like, must have been white people. That's what I thought, too. <laughs> dad, we got to do something. We got to get revenge. My dad looked at me and was like, revenge? The fuck are you, a supervillain? What the fuck you mean revenge? No, we're not getting revenge. No, we're not doing that. I was mad. I sat down, he's like, listen, we gonna do something, all right? We gonna do something that they gonna remember. They never gonna forget it. 
And I was like, hell yeah, let's do some Malcolm X shit. Fuck some shit up. He's like, no. Nah, we gonna do something though. We never gonna move ever. We gonna be here for a long time. <laughs> Call all your thug friends, we'll have a block party. There's gonna be a whole bunch of black people out here. They're like, well, where do I sharpie the car? All these cars. <laughs> That's how we gonna get them back. And that was funny. It wasn't funny to me at the time, because I was mad. That was my 1999 Nissan. That was burgundy. That people thought was purple. And I hated that. That's the bad thing about driving a burgundy car, that you always have to have that conversation. Oh, yo, Chris, you got that purple car? It's burgundy! <laughs> burgundy is edgy. <laughs> I was mad. I was about to storm off. My dad was like, sit down. I'm like, I don't want to sit down. Then he looked at me and I sat down, because I'm not stupid. <laughs> he was like, listen, son, you know how hard it is to be a racist? And I looked at him crazy as shit for that. I was like, no. To be a racist, you have to be mad all the time. Constantly. You have to just be blocking information. Constantly just mad and ignorant. That takes a lot of work. I was mad at your mama for three hours and I was tired. <laughs> They're mad constantly. And what we gotta do? Well, yeah, it's hard for us. We gotta wake up, we have to survive in a country that wasn't really set up for us, and we have to survive in that every single day. But when you start succeeding, you get on a roll, right? And as you start succeeding, people wake up mad at that. Well, how do you be the racist? You keep succeeding. So what I'ma do is why well, I gotta wipe off that Sharpie on that car today, he can't ever wipe off my success, so he gonna stay mad. And that was real as hell, but I was on my Malcolm X shit, so I didn't want to hear that. <laughs> but I was like, damn, dad, can't we just throw rocks or something? <laughs> at who? Who we gonna throw rocks at? We gonna be out here just some niggas throwing rocks? No. <laughs> you right, all right. So I'm about to leave the room. Then my dad was like, hey, if you see a white boy out there with a Sharpie, you kick his ass, though, you hear me? I'm like, all right, for sure, for sure. I didn't see him, though. No. Then he called out one more time and he was like, hey, don't do nothing crazy tonight because I know how you are. I'm like, I'm not gonna do nothing crazy. That night I did something crazy. <laughs> I called my safe suburb friends. I didn't call my city friends. I knew it would be a very different turnout. I called my suburb friends, Chris and Kevin, two of the safest black people I know. <laughs> Super safe. I'll tell you how safe they are. They were both with me hanging out in my car in front of my own house. Police pulled up because some of our neighbors didn't think we lived there, even though they've seen me for four or five years. They put me in cuffs, right? And them two yelling, angry, mad, cuffless, just running around, screaming. That's how safe they were as people. So I was like, yo, they just did that new curfew for the kids, right? You gotta be inside by 12 o'clock. I say we stay out all night in the park and just be out. That was the way of me fighting back racism. <laughs> By going to a park and just hanging out past curfew. I didn't have my riot shit together yet. I was just trying to do something to fight the system. And they were like, why are we going to a park, dog? That seems lonely. <laughs> that was Kevin. 
And Chris was like, yeah, I agree with Kevin, because dad, why are we going to a park? I was like, no, no, I'm going to call some girls, you know what I'm saying? Ash and her friends, beautiful, beautiful girls, man. Everybody wanted Ash and her friends. Ashley was the finest one, that's why she had a name. <laughs> they were all great girls, they're all cheerleaders, super dope, but I, Ashley was my crush, that's why I only remember her. It was Stephanie and some other people there. So I was like, no, I'm gonna get Ashley and her friends to come and we all just gonna have a little kicking session in the park, past curfew, be some badasses, show the system, we don't give a fuck, but like in the middle of the night though, you know? <laughs> they were like, oh, if her friends come, we down. So I call Ashley. I could just hear her beautiful ass hair on the phone when I call. <laughs> Even dialing her numbers felt different. <laughs> do, do, do. It's like, hey, Ashley. She's like, hey. I know her hey wasn't that long, but it just felt long. I was like, hey, Ashley, uh, you know, they got that curfew, right? But. I think we should say fuck that curfew and just like hang out at the park. You, me, my guys, your girls, we just have a good time. She was like, yeah, I ain't got shit to do. I'll call my girls and see if we down. So she went, she called, everything was set. I called the dudes, they were good. They were like, yo, should I bring condoms? I'm like, don't be gross. <laughs> but also, yeah, bring a condom or two. Just, just. Don't be a dirtbag, but also maybe. Yeah, yeah, be. <laughs> Me and Ashley had flirted, but we never talked about that, so I didn't have high hopes, but just being around it was dope, right? So, 12 o'clock comes, I crashed at my friend Chris's house, because his house was the easiest to sneak out of. I was planning that shit, right? So we met at the park, six of us, you know? Oh no, I brought my little brother, because I make bad decisions. <laughs> He's like, let me hang out! I'm like, fuck, come on, dude. Cause I knew Kevin wasn't gonna, he's a like, real Christian type, so he wasn't gonna try to like, mack on any girls. He's gonna try to have like, unsexy conversation. <laughs> so I figured my brother was a good filler for him. <laughs> Ashley ended up bringing two of her cousins I didn't know. So they were all hanging out. My friend Chris was in the little kid tube with Stephanie. And that had to be the most uncomfortable sexual shit ever. They're in a kid tube. There's no way to naturally be like, so what's up, girl? What's up, girl? It's weird. But they were in there, so I was like, oh, Chris. I had a blanket I put out for Ashley. She was sitting there, wind blowing. It wasn't even in wind, but her shit was just blowing. God damn, her shit was blowing, boy. Her lips was like, kiss me, but ask first, you know? We were having a great time. Kevin was there talking about some unsexy shit. <laughs> Toys R Us was packed today, you know? <laughs> Stupid shit. We were all having a great time in this park. So we were kicking it for three hours, having a good kid time. Chris is in there in that tube doing some crazy shit. Kevin over there talking about the Bible, low key. My brother's just like, I'm outside, you know? <laughs> I can't believe I'm outside. <laughs> He was having the best night of his life. He was wearing my old Timberlands, a big oversized coat. Just a little 13-year-old kid having a good time with the grown kids, you know. So we having a good time. I'm about to get down with Ashley. I'm asking for condoms. And Kevin's like, now you need condoms. But what about Jesus? I'm like, shut the fuck up and give me a condom, dude. He hands me one. As he hands me one, I hear a siren. And that's 
a sound I'm very familiar with. Well, that's not an ambulance. That's time to go. So I told everybody, yo, I know what that is. Let's go. Everybody, I'm rolling up my blanket. <laughs> like the longest blunt you've ever seen in your life. Super tight. We already gonna make sure my brother's right with me. Stay with me, because if I lose you, I lose my life. He was like, what's going on? He's just being a kid and shit. I see one cop car, then five cop cars, then six, seven, eight cop cars, two cop cars driving through the golf course. One almost fell into the lake. One almost hit Kevin. It was 15 cop cars for kids with no drugs on them in a park. We were all minorities, right? So I'm like, what the fuck is happening? I'm thinking a murder's happening behind us and we just at the wrong place at the wrong time being kids. So I did the only thing I knew to do was fucking run. I looked at my brother like, yo, you ready to go? He's like, huh, what? And we ran. <laughs> he played sports though, he's a fast dude. I'm looking back, he's running, looking back. Everybody else, they can fend for themselves, make sure my little brother good. So we ran to the car, our meeting spot. I look back and my brother's not there. I'm like, oh fuck. I look back at where we were at the park, I could see it clearly. 20 cop cars, two cop vans for kids. Two weeks ago, a dude came home, all white family, killed them all, mutilated his whole family, and skipped town to Indiana. How many cop cars showed up to that scene? Two cop cars in a corner. How the fuck are two kids with no drugs and alcohol have 20 fucking cops? That's a lot of cops with like nothing to do. That's crazy. I look back, I'm the only one who made it to the car. I'm like, shit, I gotta go back. I gotta go back for my little brother, if anything. Also, I'm the reason why Kevin and them are still over there. So I'm stealthy as shit, so I go back. I see Chris and Kevin in the cop car being transferred to the vans. I'm like, fuck. If it wasn't for me, these dudes wouldn't have got locked up, man. Like, and my brother's probably in that van just being happy, not knowing what the fuck <laughs> being arrested feels like. What are these chains? That's not normal, son. <laughs> So I was like, fuck, I gotta turn myself in. So I walked in, I felt like a hero, kind of. But I knew I was fucked already, because Chris, we were sleeping at his house, and so like, I was already gonna get in trouble, because his mama was like my mama, so she, nothing like getting your ass whooped by a mom you didn't come out of. <laughs> the, the, thing, the thing that, that keeps them from killing you is not there. So they're just going in. And I was late to work, they ain't got shit to do with me. So I walked up to the cops and was like, hey, I'm sorry, I ran too. I think y'all got my little brother. So they slammed me to the ground and all that, put me in cuffs and then put me in a van. Who did I see in that van? Chris, Kevin, no little brother. I was like, fuck! I didn't have to come back for y'all! How'd y'all get caught? Chris told me how he got caught. He was trying to jump a fence that was too high for him. The cop pulled him down, crushed his balls, he fell down, couldn't run anymore. Kevin got caught because he didn't decide to run. He jumped in a bush and pretended to be sleep. <laughs> he pretended to sleep in a bush like it was a thing people do. The cops came by and was like, what the fuck are you doing? He's like, sleeping casually. No! Got arrested. So now I'm in here with these two fucking idiots and they're like, why'd you come back? I thought my brother was here. He's not, so you feel stupid, huh? Like, yeah, motherfucker, I do. But I also couldn't leave y'all, man. 
we got to the station. Kevin and Chris didn't even go to the cell. They just went right to the lobby. They had no record at all. I had a couple of things. So I was in the cells just like, oh, my little brother's good. My dad came, bailed me out. Came to the lobby, I saw his face, and I was like, shit, I know he's mad. I looked at the officers like, hey, he might swing on me. So he was so mad, he was calm, and that's like mad I hate the most. But I had to ask the police. I'm like, yo, why, why were there so many cop cars for kids that had no drugs on them? No alcohol. We were just outside. It was like, well, one of the neighbors called and said they saw a bunch of strange, dark individuals and got scared. I was like, what? Yeah, they thought that was a gang doing a drug deal. A three-hour drug deal? Do you know how drug deals work, motherfucker? People don't do drug deals and just hang out. No. Also, half of them were girls. My dad and the police officer was like, what girls? I was like, oh, shit. Uh, none. The girls got away, which is like why I should have rolled with them in the first place. They got away clean. So I got in the car with my pops. And I don't know if you've ever like gotten bailed out of jail or just been in a situation that's bad and your parents come and catch you and you have to have that ride home. But that ride home is long as fuck. Cause like he's not saying nothing, but I know he has to say something. And I know he wants to say a lot, but it's purposeful silence because he wants to have you sit there. I'm looking at every light, like why is every light red? <laughs> we pull up to the house and I'm sweating, I'm sweating, jump out the car, he's like, no, 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 no. Get in the car, stay in the car. What you did was stupid and you lost your goddamn brother. We found him. <laughs> you did where? Well, he, so he walked five miles past our house <laughs> to the only house he's ever known to go to, his friend Brandon. 6.15 in the morning, this motherfucker rings the doorbell. Brandon mama come out, say, Justin, what you doing out here this early? Justin looked her dead in the eyes and said, out for a morning jog. <laughs> church gonna think I'm raising stupid ass kids. I wanted to laugh so bad, but I couldn't. I was just glad he was safe. I was like, man, I'm, I'm glad, I'm glad y'all found him. Yeah, you better be glad we found him. Shit. Chris, did you do this because of that window or you do this because of them girls? And I was just like, both? You ain't that stupid. Well, you grounded forever. <laughs> But I gotta ask you something. How'd you get caught? Like, we do running drills every morning. You fast as hell. If you wasn't for them grades, you'd be a star on the track team. How the fuck you get caught? And I was like, well, I thought they had Justin. And I went back, found out they ain't had Justin. And I just turned myself in. He's like, oh, yeah, that was stupid, huh? I'm like, yeah, that was stupid as shit. He's like, well, I'm glad you went back for your brother. I was like, so we ain't gonna tell mom, right? Oh, no, we gotta tell her because I'm not getting in trouble for you, nigga. <laughs> I learned a lot about like how much I love my family, how much my dad has my back. It's a stereotype in a lot of times, and a lot of people that I know that don't have fathers. And that was a time that showed me that my dad's always been to me no matter how much chaos I brought to him, which has been a lot. 
he was always there to teach me some, and I learned a lot from him. So this story is for him. Thank you. That's all for this week's Classic Risk Singles episode. Now, don't miss out on our regular full-length episodes. There's a brand new one every Tuesday. And everything you might want to know about us is at risk-show.com.